You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. My name is Courtney Rodriguez, and I have the joy of serving with Compass Kids on Wednesday nights. Please open your Bibles to Genesis 25, verses 27 through 34. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat in front of you, under the seat in front of you. Um, I'll give you a minute to turn. Genesis 25. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, church family, it's always a gift to be with you and get to open God's word. My name is Jonathan, one of the pastors here, and it's just a joy to have the living word with us and to get to hear God speak to us. And so hopefully you're already there in Genesis 25. As we jump in, just a little bit about my family. My wife, uh, Caitlin, and I have been married for about 12 years. We have two children, uh, Maya, who's eight, and Judah, who is five. And one of the things that if we're maybe on a road trip or there's like a down moment in our life, one of the things we love to do is play a little game called Would You Rather? Like you've probably heard the game before. You know, the hope of the game is that you take uh, two seemingly equally amazing or equally distressing situations and try to get someone to be like, hey, which one one did you do, right? And so we've had ones recently, you know, we'll go easy here first. Like, hey, would would you rather be able to fly or breathe underwater. And for me, it's fly. Um, would, you, would you rather live at the mountains or would you rather live at the beach? And it starts getting a little stranger. And, you know, would, you, would you rather be constantly sneezing or constantly having the hiccups? You know, and we know in our family, if it's amazing, if, you know, if my daughter, my son, one of them just like drops on the floor laughing or if they're like, neither, like I'm not playing this game anymore. You know, I'm not gonna do it. Found some other interesting ones this week. Would you rather have uh, no hair at all our hair that goes all the way down to your feet. That's exciting. You can think about that one later at lunch, hopefully more than that. Um, Would you rather sing everything you say or yell everything you say? Okay, so these conundrums that you, again, brain teasers for later. But here's the thing. Uh, when, When the game goes bad, like when would you rather goes bad, someone presents two things and you're like, come on, like that's not even a choice. Clearly it's this one. So in our family, you know, when my kids were first learning to play this game, I think one of them was like, okay, dad, you know, would you rather have a cupcake or a cockroach? I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know, you know, great one, cupcake, you know? And, and so there's these moments where you're like, how, like what, what's happening here? These, there are these would you rather gone bad moments. And I share that because when we get to our text today, like you just, you heard Courtney read it. it it's almost, it's almost such a bad would you rather gone bad. You're like, Well, is this story even true? You know, like you've got Esau 
and he's got a birthright coming his way. He's got these, the, this inheritance and these spiritual provisions and uh, uh, material, physical provisions of being the father. And, and he's got a bowl of soup in the other hand. And you're like, seriously, birthright, bowl of soup. And then to shock all accounts, he says, I'll, I'll take the bowl of soup. And, and, and our, we're jaw dropped, right? We're, we're like, how... How does this happen? I mean, to set the context, we've been in this series in the book of Genesis, and last week, here's what we saw. Last week, we saw that Esau and Jacob had a dad. His name was Isaac, and he was married to Rebekah, and they had walked through 20 years of infertility. So they had been able to have a baby for 20 years, and God, in his mercy, granted them two children, twins. And so Esau comes out, and he's hairy, looking like a Wookiee, we said last week, and he, he's red-faced, and they name him Esau, uh, Red. And then Jacob comes out, and he's holding on to Esau's heel. And they name him Jacob, uh, heel grabber, usurper. And I'm glad we don't do that anymore, right? Babies come out, we're like, you look like, ah, I'm gonna name you this, you know? But that's, that's what they name them, Jacob and Esau. And they, there was this wrestle or this struggle in their mother's womb. There, this, this prophecy of actually the, the younger it's going to rule over the older. And this, this conflict foreshadowing of the fact that their lines and descendants are going to be at odds with one another. In fact, our text today is a preview. It's like this movie preview of where we're going to go the next seven chapters in Genesis with Jacob and Esau and their conflict and their struggle. And we begin to see them grow up in our text, right? You see that in 27 and 28, the boys begin to grow up. And Esau is this man who he loves to hunt. He's um, he loves the field. In fact, in, in fact, chapter 27 will tell us he smells like the field. And it will say he was exceedingly hairy. You know, he's this burly um, man who's loved by his dad and the ladies' man who likes to hunt. And it, it's tragic. It says that his, his dad prefers him because his dad had a similar appetite. His dad loved to eat of the game that he would hunt. And then you've got... Jacob. And Jacob, instead of going out in the fields and hunting, he loves, he's more domesticated. He loves to dwell in the tents, the text says there. And he, uh, we see him cooking. He's not hunting the meat. He's, he's cooking a little bit more. And, and it says he's quiet. That would be better translated. This idea of he's like, he's got this cool calmness to him. And, and it's in his worst moments, it was this cold-blooded, like deceptive calculation. In its best moments, he's level-headed. And he, it says Jacob, is loved by his mom. There's this partiality in this family and one prefers one son and the other prefers another. We're gonna see that cause all sorts of havoc in this family. But, you know, we hear this text read. It takes about 45 seconds to read this text aloud with a, with a slow, moderate voice. About 64 words in the Hebrew language. And it's so rapid and all of a sudden you see Esau in this would you rather game gone bad, trading infinite pleasure, infinite promises of God for temporary, trivial pleasures. And the question almost becomes like, how, how does that happen? You know, it, it, a teacher most of the time will hold up a positive example and say, be like this, do this. But every once in a while, a teacher will hold up a negative example and say, don't do this. Don't do this. And this is what the text is doing for us today. So we want to look at the life of Esau thinking about this call for us here at Northway Church to be a people of faith and ask, how might we not be like this? How might we be a different people? We're gonna see three things. First, that we need a bigger perspective if we might live a life of faith versus what Esau does. Secondly, we need to be satisfied with a superior pleasure. And then last, 
we need an unshakable position, a, a bigger perspective, a superior pleasure, and an unshakable position. First, let's see this bigger perspective in our text here today. Look at 29. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. The, the first reason we're gonna see that Esau trades his birthright for a bowl of soup, how does he do that? Well, he doesn't have a bigger perspective. He is tethered to his present earthly circumstances. Keep reading, verse 30. Esau said to Jacob, uh, let me eat some of that red stew. Why? For I am exhausted. Two times in this text, it says that Esau's exhausted. That word means to be, to be weary, to be tired, to be thirsty, uh, to be languishing is one translation. Hear this, Esau, he's, he's not doing great. He, he's, he's about to throw in the towel and when it comes to life, he's at that moment of exhaustion where he uh, almost starts saying things that, that don't seem to match up with the reality of his situation. Let's read on. Not only is he exhausted, look how he talks about his situation. In 31, Jacob is gonna escalate this like crazy to Esau's ask for a bowl of stew. Jacob says, well, sell me your birthright now. In verse 32, look at Esau's answer. He says, this is his perspective of his situation, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Now, I don't know if you've had one of those moments where you or your friends start saying things that don't accurately describe the situation they're in. Um, we've been joking with our kids recently that they, they come in from playing outside, really hot and sweaty, and they'll be like, I'm starving, particularly when they see food or smell food. And we're like, you're not starving. We're trying to disciple that out of you. You know, you're not starving. You're hungry. You're not starving. And they're like fighting. They're sneaking food behind our backs. Like, I'm going to die. You know, like, no, you're okay. It's going to be okay. Or I think about maybe some of us have gone through a break up and it was difficult and, and we start saying things that our friends are like whoa you know like like I'm never dating again in fact nuns at Northway I'm starting it like celibacy like I am never looking at a guy and you're like oh like it's gonna be okay you know like desperate situation you're saying some things that might not necessarily connect with what's actually happening here but it's gonna be okay or I think about in times of weariness you know we're just like I I can't do this anymore it gets uh the situations, they get more serious, don't we? We use words like always and never. I think about a friend being diagnosed with cancer and this is the word coming out of my mouth. I'm, I'm never trusting God again. Our pain of relational conflict and we thought I'm always going to feel this way. Our pain of being hurt by someone, I'll never forgive them. Our words show the desperation that our hearts feel in difficult circumstances. So Esau is exhausted and he feels like he's about to die and he's tethered to his perspective and earthly circumstances and it affects the way that he acts and lives. But look, Jacob's not helpful. Look what Jacob does. We just read it, but in 31, what does Jacob say? He says, sell me your birthright now. Like right, right now. And then in 33, Jacob comes back after Esau's like, okay, I'm about to die. Jacob comes back in 33 and look, look what he does again. Swear to me, swear to me now, he says. When I hear that, it's interesting. You combine emotions that root you in the here and now with a voice that demands action in the here and now and we're just set up for a deep brokenness. I hear in Jacob's word of now, I, I hear this picture of like sin and temptation, like a shady salesman saying, if you don't do it right now, you're gonna miss out. You've got to do it right now. But we, we too, like these, this story is 
fascinating, but we too, like Esau, right, can be ruled and controlled by our external circumstances, dejectedly voicing things that aren't true, pressed by voices saying, do it now, and desperately in need of a wider perspective from someone. But the life of faith demands today that we be a people that carry that bigger perspective. Some of us in here come in exhausted. It might be Sunday morning, Memorial Day weekend, but we are tired and we are weary. Some of us might have even uttered a word similar to Esau in the face of temptation. What does it even matter? My life's over anyway. This is over anyway. This relationship's over. Other of us come in here and we're hearing the voice of temptation crying out and saying, now. Like, you need to do it now. You need to pay them back now. It'll be too late. You've got to find a mate now or you'll never find someone. You've got to do that right now. If, if, if you don't get that pleasure now, like, it, it's, it, it's going to pass you by. It's interesting the way that, like, temptation plays on our present circumstances. I think about anger, for example, or maybe anger can be okay in the scripture, but maybe the play out of that, like, wrath, not a righteous anger, but an unrighteous anger, wrath, it always is saying, pay them back now. But the truth of the scripture gives us a bigger perspective saying, don't take revenge. It's the Lord's to repay. Instead, be kind and compassionate, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. I think of discouragement and weariness. I've just been looking at this text and praying for you guys. I think of some of us that might be in our own situations of discouragement and weariness. And we might say, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to give up now. And I just think of Paul's words to the Corinthians in the midst of their weariness in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. It'll be on the screen. Look at, look at his words and how he helps them zoom out and say, believer in Christ, there's more than you can see now. He says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, Esau is one bowl of soup and one rest away, I think, from making a different perspective. He's one conversation with a loving friend from making a different decision. And maybe we are too. So first, like Esau, here's the first thing to live this life of faith we need to see. Contrary to him, we need a bigger perspective. We need to see what we cannot see. We need eyes to see beyond the present moment. But that's not all. We also, maybe more than that, need to be satisfied with a superior pleasure. We need to be satisfied with something that's better than what we can see. Look down at verse 30. Again, and look what Esau says to Jacob. He says, let me eat some of that red stew. We're gonna see that he's not just tethered to earthly circumstances, he's tethered to his appetite as well. So he says, let me, let me eat some of that stew. That word means to swallow greedily. And th this is the literal translation of how that verse would be heard. Let me gulp some of that red stuff, this, this red stuff. Like twice, he's he's." Fluttering and self-seeking, he's greedily gasping. He hear him, see him in the sex. He's falling over himself for what we read later. He sells his birthright for in verse thirty-four is really just lentil stew. It's not this meaty, hearty red stew that it seems like to him. It's it's lentils, but it, it looks like something that he's got to have beyond anything else in the moment. But look how look how he views his birthright. It's kind of instructive that look at thirty-one again. Right after he says. I'm about to die. What does he say next? Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. Verse 32, Esau says, I'm about to die. 
of what use is a birthright? To which we would say to him, of what use is a birthright? Esau, your birthright is of eternal use. Again, a birthright in this day um, signified a couple of things. First, the, the, the recipient of the birthright would get two-thirds of the estate of the family. That's crazy. So two-thirds of the estate of the family was coming his way. Secondly, um, the, the, the recipient of the birthright would walk in the honor and responsibilities of the father in this Eastern culture. And that was an incredible dignifying place to be, that I'm going to get to walk into the responsibility of providing for my family and the honor of being a father. But lastly, and I think most significant, there is a spiritual heritage connected to the birthright. We, we've talked about how in Genesis 12, God appeared to Abram and said, I'm going to take you, this one family, and I'm going to single you out, and I'm going to bless you so that through you, all the nations might be blessed. And this line is going throughout the book of Genesis, and this line continues to the birthright, what was supposed to be Esau's. And, and Esau, in this moment, is relinquishing all of these things. He's looking at his birthright and saying, this is worthless. In fact, that's how our text ends. In the book of Genesis, you don't see a lot of commentary, but in this text there is, it says, over the whole story, this is the key to the story, it says, thus Esau despised his birthright. In other words, he disdained his birthright. He saw his birthright as worthless. Okay, here, here's my best picture and it's a little crazy of like, how, how might we understand what a crazy trade this is? What a downgrade this is? What an awful game of would you rather this is? Imagine you are eating tacos in Dallas, Texas. Hard to imagine, right? So you're at your taco place. For the sake of argument, we're going to say top five taco place. Velvet Taco is one of those, right? Okay, so Velvet Taco is in the top five. You're eating at Velvet Taco. You are gulping down your delicious boutique tacos there at Velvet Taco. And in staggering, stumbling, walks owner of the Cowboys, Jerry Jones, okay? And he comes up to your table and he is famished and he is starving. And he's like, let me gulp down one of those tacos, those delicious tacos. And you, cold and calculating you, says, okay, make me two-thirds owner of the Dallas Cowboys now, you know? And he says, I'm about to die. What use are the cowboys? And in there, that transfer happens. You and your boutique taco and him giving you two-thirds ownership in the Dallas Cowboys. I know it's crazy. I know it's absurd, but I want you to feel the weight of this awful exchange that takes place in this text. And then for us, it might not be this birthright for a bowl of soup, but if we're honest, it's little exchanges all along the way, isn't it? St. Augustine called this disordered loves. Here's what he meant. When you see a disorderedness in your life, um, it, it can be traced back to disordered loves in the heart. John Calvin said our hearts are like idol factories. He didn't mean physical idols that we bow down before. He meant that we are so prone to trust and treasure other things besides Jesus Christ, that we're prone to, to trust and treasure our comfort and say it's better than Jesus. We're prone to take hold of control and think that's better than Jesus. We're prone to live for approval and think that's better than Jesus. I, I know you know this, but each and every time you see one of your pastors up here teaching and preaching or leading communion or one of your ministers leading worship, you know that we are jacked up people just like you with disordered hearts and loves, right? As, as I've been in this text, God's just been convicting me, like, man, my loves are so disordered. 
Like friends, I, I live for the approval of people at times. I just long for like people to approve of me. And at times I trust and treasure that more than Jesus Christ. I'm just praying, oh God, reorder my loves and then reorder our loves as a church. May we trust and treasure what's truly valuable. Idolatry is this awful exchange where we trade the greater for the lesser. We forsake God and his promises for lesser gods and false promises. And this isn't just an Esau Jacob thing. This is all throughout the scriptures, right? We've seen this in Genesis that continually people are going around God to get what only God can give and satisfy. They're going around God and they're lying and they're manipulating and they're scheming and they're taking additional wives and it's wrecking havage everywhere. This is the people in Jeremiah's day. In Jeremiah 2, he says to them, you people, you have forsaken God and he's the fountain of living water. And you've traded him for these cisterns, these like muddy, dirty waters. And you thought that was a good trade. You traded the fountain of living water for these cisterns. And then Romans, this is Romans, right? In Romans 1, Paul says, you've got a lie in your one hand and you've got the one true God here and you traded the truth of God for a lie. Our hearts are prone to trust and treasure. Like other things besides Jesus Christ, we're prone to, to make other things, to think they'll satisfy, to be ruled by our appetites, just like Esau. And I, I just believe like God and his kindness, like for some of us, he just wants to remind us of that this morning. He just wants to show us the lesser loves of our heart, that we might make an up, upgrade, that we might trade back uh, what we have chosen to worship and love versus who he is. Um, Thomas Chalmers was a, a Puritan pastor, and he had a sermon that was entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That's a really good sermon title, uh, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And here's what he said there. He said, we don't just need old uh, idols removed, we need them replaced. So, so our, our, our need isn't, I just need to stop doing this. I need to uh, stop lusting. I need to stop looking at images. I need to stop being greedy. I need to stop walking in faithlessness and anxiety. That's not the issue. That's part of it. Yes, put those away, but he said, we, we need them replaced. We need old loves replaced. If not, something else will just keep filling its place. We all know this, right? If you've ever known someone that's walked through a heart transplant, um, they don't just remove an old heart, they put a new one in. Uh, we know this if you've been to the dentist or your kids, you know, they don't just take out a cavity, they put a filling in, they must fill it. Uh, Dallas, hello, like foundational issues, they don't just replace old beams, they should, they put new beams in. It's not just removal, but it's replacement. And this is what the Lord wants to do in our hearts. He wants to show us just the, the, the fickleness of old loves, just this idea that we see our idols and earthly pleasures and we realize they have asked much of us, but they've given very little. They have taken our time, our treasures, our money, our talents, our gifts, our stewarding, but they've left us broken, beat down, and used up. But oh Jesus, he and he alone actually was broken, beat down, and used up that we might be free. Look at this, the good news of the gospel and the awful exchange that Christ got, Christ got this beautiful exchange that we got, this early church document called the Epistle to Diognetius just talks about it. I just want to read it for us real quick. May we just relish in this. It says this, in his mercy, he took upon himself our sins. He himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal, 
For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. The scandalous grace of the good news of the gospel, the beautiful exchange of what Christ does for us who have made awful exchanges, who have traded greater things for lesser things. He comes in and does what we cannot do. Okay, so, so we, like Esau, can be prone to be tied to earthly circumstances. We need a bigger perspective. We, like Esau, can be prone to be ruled by our appetites. We need a superior pleasure. But just last, the last thing we need of, of how, how does this replacement happen? How might we walk in the good news of the gospel? We need an unshakable position. We need to rest and rejoice in the better position that we have. So we get to the end of our text and the pleasures and the perspective that Esau has been ruled by, it doesn't give him what he's longing for. In fact, the text ends saying, you know, he's got this bread, verse 34, and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Those are four verbs in the original. Ate, drank, rose, went his way. It's so transactional. It's so mechanical. He's losing his humanity, it feels like, in the act that he's given himself to, and thus it ends he despised. He thought his birthright, he saw it as, as worthless. And so the focus here has been on Esau. But like Shay said last week, Jacob is no angel either, right? We realized from the cool and calculated nature of Jacob that this stew cook-off was actually a setup. And instead of being brotherly and others-oriented, Jacob is selfish and he takes advantage of his brother's exhaustion and earthly appetites. He leverages them for his own advantage. He escalates a simple question for stew to a cold-blooded, sell me your birthright now. He takes a step further and says, swear to me now. We almost, like if, if we're reading this text, wouldn't we expect it to end? So Jacob was crafty and manipulative, and he tricked his brother out of the birthright. But however scheming and crafty Jacob is, the focus isn't on Jacob, the focus is on Esau, and that's kind of disorienting. Again, Esau, he's, he's bullish, he's impetuous, he's impulsive, he's flippant, unconcerned, godless, profane. Jacob, Jacob's a rascal, guys. You know, he's deceptive and manipulative. He's scheming. He's unbrotherly. He's self-serving. Whereas Esau is feckless. Jacob is reckless. Esau is driven by appetites. Jacob is driven by ambition. So the question we should be feeling is how in the world, how in the world is Jacob chosen? How is he chosen by God? In Genesis, you know, you read about cultures with two iron laws. One was that the worth of women in Genesis was seen in their beauty and, and their ability to have children. So thankful that God turns that on its head. Secondly, we see that um, the firstborn was given the birthright. The firstborn was given the, 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 this gift. But as one commentator says in the pages of Genesis, you start seeing God overturning the world's values. In every generation, God works not with the son who has the greater cultural power and status, but with the younger son. Think about it through our series, Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. Later in the book, it'll be Joseph and Judah over Reuben, Ephraim over Manasseh. 
in the Hebrew scriptures later, God choosing Moses over Aaron and then even uh, David over his, all of his older brothers. So here's what this commentator says. Not only were these figures younger sons, which was remarkable by itself, but they were also flawed. A fact that the biblical texts do nothing to hide. Jacob was a man damaged by his father's favoritism towards Esau, became a dishonest schemer. Moses had a speech impediment. Later in the Bible, God chooses deliverers like Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, whose lives are littered with the wreckage of foolish decisions. The repeated choice of weakness in each generation cannot be a coincidence. God does it to better display his power to transform the most unpromising lives. So I just want you to hear that begin to wrap up, that this is what God's doing, that, that we have an unshakable position, that if you are in Christ Jesus, God has chosen you, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done, not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus Christ is. And this is unthinkable grace that gives us an unshakable position that we realize we're sons and daughters of the King. This is our position, no matter where we go or what we do, we are his children, getting to rest and rejoice in the position that he has given us, not a position that we could have earned, but a position that's, that we're claimed, loved, and chosen only by him. This story has gotten more popular this last week with the passing of Pastor Tim Keller, but Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was close to death, people asked him, he was a famous uh, British preacher. They said, how are you dealing with this? How are you dealing with everything seemingly being taken away? And he quotes Luke 10. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 72 and they come back rejoicing in what they've done. The demons are subject to our names, they say. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, don't rejoice in what you do or what you've done. Rejoice in the fact that you are his, that you belong to him. Friends, God longs for us to see beyond limits and shortcomings in our own life and to see a God of grace who knows, loves, and claims and chooses children based on his mercy, not our merit. This is what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who knows that God, God is their father and knows that they are sons and daughters, that they're loved, chosen, and rescued by a father. And then as we begin to rest in that, and as we begin to rejoice in that above other rejoicings, idols start getting removed and replaced by better affections. Idols start like shooting in and out and we, we have a replacement of who we are in Christ over those things. Well, what do we do with this? What do we do with these things? There's just been a couple, when you turn the pages to Hebrews 12, it talks about how Esau was um, a godless man, that he was profane, and he, he didn't receive, that he traded his birthright for soup and then ended up, later we'll see, he doesn't receive the blessing and he seeks it with tears, but he wasn't able to receive it because he wasn't really repentant. He just cared about what he lost. He didn't really care about his heart before God. And as I'm just thinking about you guys these last few weeks, our church here at Northway Church, there's just a, a couple things that God's put on my mind and they're all, they're all in Hebrews 12. If you wanna go look later, they're all aspects of Hebrews 12, but one has just been those of us that would come in today and just feel particularly weary. Just feel like I'm done in this situation. I'm done in this relationship. I'm, I'm done maybe even with my walk with Christ. It's just been chipped away again and again and again. And I've just been praying that you might see the heritage you have, the inheritance you have, the future glory promised to you and be encouraged that you might see the better possession that you have in Jesus Christ and be encouraged this morning. Get to rest in whose you are. I've been thinking about those of us that are weary. I've been thinking about those of us that maybe just 
anger, like unrighteous anger just has a hold on our lives. We're just like, I just want to pay people back now. It could be a family member, a parent, a cousin, or a friend, who knows, and just praying that in God's mercy, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, that the, the one righteous one was treated unrighteously so that us unrighteous could become the very righteous of Christ, that you would see the great, beautiful exchange and your heart would melt and trust him, as the scriptures say, to leave room for God's wrath and be kind and compassionate to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And then just the last one, for those of us, and this is directly connected with Esau in Hebrews 12, for those of us that just feel in the shackles, if we were honest, we feel in the shackles of immorality and lust, that God would just take you by the head and look you in the eyes and remind you of the fact that you are chosen and loved in Jesus Christ, that he has transformed you, that you're not who you were, and that he is a better and superior pleasure than anything you could give yourselves to. And he might just woo you back a little bit this morning to repent, to turn, to remove those idols, but to replace and to rejoice in how beautiful and precious that he is. A life marked by faith sees a bigger perspective, is satisfied in a superior pleasure, and stands on an unshakable foundation. But friends, we fall short, but oh, oh for Jesus. We fall short in our bigger perspective, but oh, for Jesus, Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame, is now seated at the right hand of God. And it says, consider him that you might not grow weary. We, friends, we fall short of looking to superior pleasures. We fall short, we disdain, we hate the things we should love and we love the things we should hate. But oh, see Jesus who is despised so that we might be healed. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. But upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. Friends, we look to other positions and accomplishments besides the unshakable position that we have in him. But again, oh, Jesus, who in the temptation, the desert with the enemy, when the enemy says, if you were the son of God, you would do this. He, he doesn't follow the temptation, but he steps into his true sonship as a beloved son of the king, resting and rejoicing in that, able to say no, to succeed even where we fail. C.S. Lewis summarized the, the, the whole pericope of what we're studying here like this in the weight of glory. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Let me just pray for us and we'll get to celebrate communion in the Lord's table together as a family. Well, Father, we thank you God, I just thank you for your inspired word that we have in our own language. I thank you for the story that makes us tremble, God, that we would not trade the infinitely valuable for the trivial and temporary. Lord, give us sight. Lord, give me sight. Help us see, God, what we cannot see this morning. Help us see what's true beyond our current circumstances. God, give us perspective. May we wear an eternal lens here at Northway Church that 
We're going to be seeing Jesus face to face soon. Help us have an eternal lens. Lord, give us a taste for that which is truly lovely. Replace our lesser loves with your grandeur and your beauty. We want to want you, God. We want to want you. Would you change what we love and care about? And Lord, may we be a church that stands on the unshakable foundation of our position in you. How can we ever get over the fact, God, that you have claimed chosen us and loved us. Our names are in the Lamb's book of life as followers of Christ. We thank you for that. God, I just pray if there's anyone here today and that's not their story, that you would just show them the beauty of Christ today and woo them to yourselves. We praise you, Jesus, for these things and we pray this for your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.